0: I want you to turn to 1 John, chapter 2, the first epistle of John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. Keep your Bibles open, if you will. We'll look at some things out of this passage and reflect back to it. And uh, something that God has laid on my heart. 1 John chapter 2. Let's start with verse 12. Now, I want you to notice in verse 12, 13, and 14, there are three groups that he mentions. These three groups are each mentioned two times. I write unto you, and here's the first group little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, here's the second group, fathers, because you have known him, that is from the beginning. I write unto you, the third group, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, there he repeats the first group, because you have known the father. I have written unto you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. In verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they, might, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One and ye know all things. Verse 26, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you but as the same anointing teacheth you all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, what's these next five words? Ye shall abide in him. And verse 28. And now little children, abide in him. Those three words are the text, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Warren and Pam Adams probably had one of the most unusual experiences of any couple in the United States of America in recent history. The name at first may not mean much to you, uh, but when I mention some of it, feel free I know you'll probably Google some of it and that's okay. Uh, You'll find the historical record of the occurrence in their life. They had always longed to retire and have a beachfront property in a warm area. And being from the Texas area, they decided to go to a little town called Gilcrest, Texas. And it's just a peninsula that's there in 2003, a hurricane by the name of Rita came through the area. And in that particular hurricane, their home, their dream home, and their potential retirement home was leveled to the ground. They decided to rebuild because they thought the, the chance of a hurricane coming through and destroying another home would be very, very slim and be very unique. So they rebuilt. Their home. They added on to it, invested more money in it, and rebuilt on the same property as the previous home. In 2008, Hurricane Ike came through Gilcrest, Texas. Winds of 100 to 110 mile an hour, but the winds, that wasn't the worst part. It was the storm that caused a surge in the sea, and then being in a peninsula. After that it was finished, the fire station was demolished. Everything that was there was demolished. There were 200 homes in Gilcrest, Texas. Only one house withstood the storm. In fact, they said they wouldn't have even known it was Gilcrest, Texas if it wasn't for one landmark that was left, and that was the home of Warren and Pam Adams. Why did that storm not destroy that home? Well, I think that it stands to reason they lost something in one hurricane. So they made up their mind to prepare for another hurricane in the event that it would come. When they rebuilt they rebuilt their home, it was 14 feet, the, the pillars under it were 14 feet to the bottom floor of their home. And they structure the home to be almost just under 30 feet, I think 22, 25 feet above sea level in the event that a surge came through. And now that home still exists. The other homes have not been rebuilt. And as of today, when this message was preached, you can rent that home as a vacation home. They've now, uh, I believe he has passed, she may still be living, but... Uh, That home has now been sold and if you want to rent it, you have to search the Google search. You search for the last house standing. That's how you find it to rent it for a vacation home. Can I tell you that John teaches us some vital lessons? John, just like all the other gospel writers, when he would pin certain things, he would have key words that he would use. And one of those key words we read in two different forms to you, and that is abide. We're to abide in him, and he shall abide in us. John was saying this to the church. This church was being hit by a cultural storm, and the cultural storm was causing people to flood out of the church. And as they were flooding out of the church, some of the church leaders were getting discouraged. And John brings out the simple thought, they couldn't stay anyway because the storm would destroy them. But he said, if you remain in Christ and you abide in Christ, and there's some things that if you abide in it, you'll be able to stand against all of the storms that come against you. Now. Folks, you may not realize this, but there is a cultural storm. It's not a political storm. It is a cultural storm against the church because all groups of political beliefs seem to be on board with this cultural movement that's against the church. And there's a reason for that. And John's trying to tell us, he's so wise, he not only tells us the problem, but he tells us the progression of how to overcome that problem. And these storms are blowing for a particular reason because the, uh, the enemy of our soul knows. He can bring cultural storms against Jesus, but it won't work. The winds that blow against Jesus, that does absolutely nothing at all to Jesus. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Culture has changed in the 2,000 years since he was here, but he's still the same Jesus. He is the same Jesus that he was when this earth was flung into existence and ordered by God to come into existence. He'll still be the same Jesus when this earth has vanished and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. He'll still be the same Jesus with the same power on the same throne and all of the ideas of culture. It won't change who Jesus is, what he thinks, what he does, the things that he's going to do. He is Jesus and he will be forevermore. Culture comes against the word of God, but that does no good because the word of God is forever settled in heaven. So it doesn't do any good for him to come against the word of God because God's not changing his word. You can change culture to say this is acceptable and that's acceptable and we'll go along with this and we'll go along with that, but that doesn't mean the word of God's gonna go along with it. You can take it out of the book, but you can't take it out of heaven's record. So it's still there if you ignore it, if you do it, if you don't do it, it's still there and it's not changing. But what he will come against is the one thing that is the easiest to change. That's the church. Because the church is made up of people and people are fickle and people change their mind quickly and people will say I'll never do that and turn around and do it. People will say I believe this with all my heart but then they don't do it. Thank both of you for the amen. As I get older, there's something about me that I get more appreciative of people that are just committed and faithful and abide to the end. They're not looking for the applause of men and women. They're not concerned about how many people they have following them on social media. They're not impressed with the famous They're not moved by the things that move society. They have just determined to be unshakable and unmovable and to go out the way that they started serving God with a determination to live for God with all biblical integrity and stand for God in the face of cultural change and say, none of that matters. I've got to make heaven my home and I've got to do what's right by God and just plain old-fashioned, simple integrity that stands and abides, means more than ever before. So there is a determination to stand. But how do we stand against these changes? Now, tonight, for those of us that is older, I will say, in one sense, it's easier to stand because we're near home. But as a warning to those of you that are younger. My, 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 what I have seen in five years in the changes in churches as I travel. I can't imagine what you're going to face. And I'm not saying that to say, woe is you. John's not trying to point to just the negative. He's trying to tell you how to overcome the negative. And he said, there's three stages that if you want to overcome the clash of culture, there's three stages that exist in the Christian life. He says first, he deals with little children. Now, these stages have nothing to do with your age. It has to do with your spiritual maturity. So he's really dealing with spiritual maturity in the Lord. And he tells us a little bit about this group known as The little children. I refer to it as the childhood stage. Infancy into childhood. And then this infancy stage, he tells us specifically this is the only stage that he names two things about this stage. When he uses little children twice, he says first, the little children that he's talking about are those whose sins have been forgiven. So, first, he's talking about. Those that are saved, are you saved? When you got saved, did you know you were a babe in Christ? We don't start the journey as a mature Christian. We start the journey as a babe in Christ. And then we get to the place where that we're moving from the milk of the word to the meat of the word and that's a process. So he says that age group not only needs to realize that you have been forgiven of your sin. See, to begin with, he puts us at a place where he says don't move from that stage too quickly. You've got to complete this process because it's important that you realize that you are forgiven. You can't go forward until you are sure of the fact you've been forgiven. You can't go to stage two, stage three if you're not sure that you've been forgiven. So it is a constant battle Culture will battle you. You didn't get anything. Heaven is not real. God doesn't say what he means. How can you trust the word of God? How do you know it's not just an emotional experience? You've got to get it established in your mind that on the authority of God's word and by the power of Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven. The Lord says I'm forgiven, and that's good enough. And not only does that age group First, know that their sins are forgiven, but he says second about them, because you have known the Father. This stage is the process where we get to know the heavenly Father. It's about our relationship with the Lord. A lot of people never leave this stage, and that's why I read the one verse to you. That's why they leave the church not Rubyville church, they're leaving the church. You do realize now that we have people that are praising worship leaders in this country that don't even believe there's a God. And I'm not being hard on them, the reason they're that way is because they don't know their sins are forgiven. What I'm hard on is a church that has the idea that if we pay somebody some money, eventually they'll work their way into this. And you don't work your way into salvation. You don't work it up, you don't get there, you come as a sinner saying I'm not worthy to be saved and you trust in the work of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sin and that's when you become his child. And then you start this stage where you get to know the heavenly father. Do you know, uh, zebras? do zebras interest you? They interest me. Uh, they're, they're a unique animal. I mean, to look at them, we know they're in the horse family. There's three different groups of zebras in the world. And uh, they're known by their stripes. And why do zebras have stripes? Well, ask that question, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some say that the stripes is so when they're gathered as a herd, it makes it harder on predators to target in on them. Uh, some say that the stripes are there, believe it or not. They say that uh, flies, horse flies and insects, they don't, they don't light on zebras as much because of the pattern that is there. And with the type vision that they have, they have a hard time seeing them. So it helps protect them from that. In fact, they've done studies where that they have put covers, jackets, blankets over horses to make them stripe like a zebra and those horses got bit less by horse flies than the ones that didn't have that. That's interesting to me. I want to go out and buy a zebra suit in the summertime, (laughs) walk around. (laughs) Because we sure have the horse flies around here. And then uh, the amazing thing to me though is, it, it, it is documented, they, uh, they are unique because of their stripes. From what I read and in my studies, they say that zebra stripes are as unique as a human fingerprint. Did you know that? Their, their stripes aren't the same. And uh, they, they say that they're as unique literally as a snowflake. So in a herd, they all look the same. And you know, they're the same type of zebra and the same family of zebra. And to look at them, they all look the same. But when you separate them, they're as unique. One from the other, there are no two that's identical. And since they all look alike at a difference, they do the strangest thing at first. You think it's strange. See, when they're born, when the foal is born, they. at first within 20 minutes they can stand and within 40 minutes they can run. That's remarkable, a baby that can run in 40 minutes. But as soon as they run, the mother isolates the foal from the herd. She doesn't allow the little one to get in the herd. The mother will spend a minimum of two to three days and from what I read, probably two to three weeks that she allows that baby to see no other zebra but her. And where they really can tell the difference in the stripes is where the stripes come around to the forehead and to the face. So constantly, she's putting her face in the face of the baby. And the reason why is she knows when she gets the baby back in the herd that the only way that the baby will know I'm the one that's birthed you, you have to know my stripes. The only way you're gonna get to know the heavenly father is to know the stripes of him who birthed you. Oh, glory to God until we know his stripes that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. When you get saved, God calls you aside and says, listen, we need to have some face-to-face meetings. He says, I want you to know my voice. There's no voice like my voice. I want you to know the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing like the discernment of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know the power of my word. There's others that maybe they don't see the importance of that, but John teaches us there are false spirits and to try the spirits to see if they be of God. How can you try the spirits if you don't know the true God? So he spends time getting to know you so you can know and love him. You can pick him out in the middle of the herd. Boy, I tell you, that's good enough to go home on right there. You need to know your father. You need to know the movement of his his grace. You need to know his presence as he takes control. This has ruined the ministry. A lot of pastors don't know the voice of God. They they don't know the presence of the Holy Ghost. There are people that come to church here that scold me if I don't preach. And you know what I tell them? I've got to obey God No matter what you think. And There's a difference between a preacher being too lazy to preach and a preacher that hears the voice of God that says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Sometimes God says, I don't need any of y'all today. I'm gonna do it all by myself. And the Holy Ghost floods inside the four walls of the building and God doesn't work. It doesn't always have to be an hour and a half in or it doesn't have to be an hour in. God can show up in the first five minutes. The important thing is, We recognize when God is in control. There is that next stage. The young men, that's what I call adulthood. They're strong. They overcome the wicked one. You can't be strong and you can't overcome the wicked one until you know him, until you know his word. Until you know his spirit, you can be aware of, of the fact that you're an overcomer. These young men, now don't don't mistake that he's leaving the women out. It's a general term that he's saying for a group, he's saying, watch young men. You watch the young men in the church and you look at them, they're 13, 14, 15 years old, Sometimes they're, to look at them, they look weak. No offense, gentlemen. But have you ever noticed in one summer, all of a sudden, everything changes? Their biceps seem to grow. and <laughs> Their chest sticks out. They walk a little taller. All of a sudden, they, want to cut the lawn without their shirt on. <laughs> Hang in there, you'll put it back on. <laughs> now you know the strange thing about that? That strength was already there. But until you reach a certain age, and, and by that I'm not talking a particular age, I'm talking about a maturity in your body where suddenly resilience is needed and weight is put on you. If, if you use resistance at too young of an age, you'll hurt a young man. You can destroy their sports career if you put them at a place where they're dealing with resistance too quickly. Resistance training can destroy them if they start too early. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. And damage their muscles, damage their joints. Their bones are not strong enough yet, but there's a stage where they reach in maturity that then you can increase the weight. Does anybody hear what I'm preaching? We want God to take the weights away all the time, but God said, you don't understand, you're like that young man that the strength is already in you, you just don't know it's in you, but now it's time for me to put a little weight on you, and when I put a little weight on you, all it's gonna do is make you strong, and when you get strong, you can overcome the wicked one. Is there any doubt that the devil is at work in this country and around this world? How do we overcome him? We overcome him by the strong one that's in us. The strength is in us the power of his word and the power of his spirit but now we reach a a stage of resistance against us and we don't want that to be removed that's what helps us to grow strong in the Lord and when you reach that stage where you've now gone from infancy that creates intimacy to adolescence that accrues power then you come to father's This is not the stage of resistance. It's not the stage of relationship. This is the stage of revelation. This is the group that finally gets it all. He says twice of the fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. Stage one, you get to know him. Stage three, you know he's always been. This is what John says. This is the same John in John chapter one that says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's now telling us you reach a stage where you say, why Lord, anywhere I go, anything I face, you've already been there before me and you know the way through it. You have been, you are and you will be forevermore. And you start teaching that and you become spiritual parents so we go from childhood to adulthood to parenthood and why is he referring to us as spiritual parents because he says some of you reach the stage as spiritual parents where you can now tell who Jesus is and you start telling who Jesus is he is the lily of the valley he is the rose of Sharon He is the bright and morning star. He is the everlasting of the father. He is the savior of the world. He is the redeemer of lost mankind. He is the one that knows all things. He is the one that endures through all things. You begin to tell others who he is. Because now you've got enough experience under your belt that you can say, I've been there, I've tried him and he's reliable, he's sure, he's steadfast. He will not fail you. And by the way, he tells us why we need to reach this stage. He says because pretty soon, Jesus is gonna split the eastern sky and he's gonna come again. My question is, now I didn't say this. Jesus said this. He said, when he comes again, he didn't say, will there be church buildings that I can find? He didn't say that. He said, when I come, he didn't say, will I find church treasuries with plenty of money in it? He didn't say that. He didn't say, Will I find gatherings of people that call themselves a church? He didn't say that. He said, When I come, will I find faith? I guess my question is this simple. We cannot answer for other churches, and I'm not here to condemn any other church. I'm really not. I don't want you to take this sermon the wrong way. But I'm going to ask you a simple question. When Jesus comes, will his house still be standing? Will he find a people of faith? Will he find a church that loves him more than the world? quite apparent half of our people love the world now more than they love the the Lord. We see churches now, and we'll follow that pattern if we're not careful. First, we'll just have a service on Sunday morning and maybe Sunday night. You don't need Bible study. You don't need Wednesday night. You can do that on your own. Not enough people coming to pay the light bills. That's what preachers tell me all the time. And then, why do you need two services a week? You can be just as saved with one. Yes, you can be just as saved. And by the way, you may not die of starvation if you eat one meal a week. But I want to eat more than once a week. Will he find faith? Will your house be standing. Do you know why their house stood? Because from the house they lost they learned how to build one that would stand. Will this house stand? Will your house Stand to the coming of the Lord. We're the only one that can determine that.